Network, a podcast designed for women working in financial services and financial technology. I'm Cheryl Brown, Chief Engagement Officer at Females and Finance. I'm also an international speaker on social and digital marketing, too. On The F Word, you'll meet leaders in the community, as well as learn more about recruiting, training, advancing, and retaining quality female talent. Let's take a listen to today's episode. and welcome to the show. Today we welcome Joanne Cleaver. Her bio is quite impressive. She is the president of content development consultancy Wilson Taylor Associates Inc. and helps industries figure out how they're doing in terms of advancing women and how they can do better. Through their MOVE project, a research methodology Joanne designed, they have transformed the accounting, cable television, other industries. Women gain lifelong economic independence by investing in careers and companies that evolve. And in Cleaver's seventh book, The Career Lattice, it frames the power of lateral moves to fuel career success. She's a valued source in the words of one Wall Street uh, Journal reporter for insights on pay equity, which we're gonna talk a lot about today, women's career development, corporate culture, career pathing, and entrepreneurship. She's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, and in numerous business publications. She's a former deputy business real estate editor for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a former content manager for Tribune Digital, and holds an MSJ and a BSJ from Northwestern University's Middle School of Journalism. Cleaver uh, co-chairs the Educational Foundation of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, and I'm so excited to have her here today to talk to us. Welcome to the show, Joanne. Thank you so much. So I'm a self-admitted stalker. People who listen to this know that when I like someone's work, I will stalk them until they become my friend. And so I saw your work. Uh, I met you on LinkedIn. I had been, uh, actually a couple of members from the females and finance community tagged me in a couple of things that you were featured or you had written uh, specific to things that affected our females and finance community. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I need to know her. And you were kind enough to accept my connection request and chat with me. So I'm really grateful for that. Well, I think it goes both ways. So I want you to tell everyone your background story and how you came to do the work that you do today, because the story that you shared with me over the phone the last time we talked was so impressive. I took literally a page of notes off of our conversation. Well, I've been a business journalist for a really long time. And, um, started right out of grad school. I got a husband, a bachelor, a husband, a master's, and a baby all in 15 months between 1980 and 1981. And that baby is now handing over um, grandbabies. So um, I guess, yay, success on that front. Um, and I really, really enjoyed business journalism because I like um, reporting on trends that you can measure. So much of journalism, you know, just basically outlines a problem or a difficulty or, you know, it's very reactive. Um, but I really liked um, being able to interview and profile executives and startup companies and companies that were growing and understand how they defined a problem and then how they defined the solution, which, of course, they believed they were going to make money at. But it's only a win-win if it's sustainable. And if it's not, um, if you aren't really solving people's problems, then you won't have a sustainable business model. So that's what I absorbed, I'm sorry, absorbed um, as a business journalist starting my career. 
And then 20 years ago, um, in the late 90s, I started doing a lot of work for a magazine called Working Woman. It does not exist anymore. Uh, Working Mother, which is a related title, does still exist. But uh, Working Woman had started in the early 70s and was a big deal for women who were working. They're kind of that first generation um, to really leave the house in significant numbers and especially the first generation of women in significant numbers to go into business careers. Women have always been present in education and healthcare, but the 70s represented the first significant wave of women in business. So the editor of Working Woman um, wanted me to come up with a methodology for assessing the status of women in the executive ranks of the Fortune 500. And I did. And that was the um, top 25 companies for executive women list, which the magazine introduced. And I managed that project for six project cycles and really saw um, the, the good intentions and the sometimes results, but but the erratic results, really, of those good intentions on the part of company leaders for trying to figure out why do women leave? Why do we invest in women? And then why do we leave? And having a bunch of programs is not necessarily the solution. I mean, the programs may or may not translate to change in culture and to change in the everyday operations of the company to, um, re to, to align with their big goals. So the everyday reality of women was not aligning with what the corporate executives are saying. The corporate executives are saying, women, we love women. And women every day were like, really? I'm not feeling that loved. Because because they, their bosses, their direct line supervisors would contradict um, the, the official line or um, there, are, there are always or often barriers to serving customers and clients that were in conflict with the diversity goals and with the goals of retaining women. It's a very interesting problem because it operates on two tracks simultaneously. The first one is that everyone agrees, we need more women, we need to continue to invest in women, we need to invest in women smarter, better, and retain women for their own economic health, but also obviously to provide the brain power we need to drive economic growth for every company, every industry, and for the entire country, and I guess for the world as well. Um, but then the other track is that you know, women take go into work every day and they face a lot of small barriers that add up to big barriers and they just say, you know what, I don't think this is worth it. Or you look at the baby that you're leaving and you say, you know, we'll just stipulate that any baby is cuter than any boss and has more appeal. I mean, on any given day, it feels like a conflict. And so, yes, um, the, the big goals uh, we're not translating to everyday life. So the goal of the Working Woman Project, um, the top 25 companies for executive women list, was to really try to line up um, the intentions and the results and understand what worked. Well, then Working Woman went under. That wasn't my fault. We sold a lot of advertising, not me personally, but the, that, that section did really well, but it wasn't enough to save the whole, the whole magazine. And I took that methodology to individual industries and have, as you mentioned, um, have run essentially the same methodology for industries and looking at the success of women in terms of the context of the growth drivers for each industry. What works for a technology company does not necessarily translate or apply to a healthcare company. And so when you see these really big projects or, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, organ nonprofit organizations and research organizations and like CEO alliances and stuff like this that will trot out the same solutions over and over again. They'll be like, oh, it's mentoring or, oh, it's corporate sponsorship or, oh, it's, you know, women need to be more confident. Well, that's all true, but it's all 
also not enough because all of those dynamics, all of those factors need to be interpreted for the specific culture and the growth drivers and the opportunities industry by industry for women. And it looks different for every industry. So I found that the real secret sauce, the real sweet spot is translating the methodology for each industry. We just released in June the um, 11th report for the accounting profession, the Accounting Move Project, that does exactly this. Takes a deep dive into that point of partnership where firms have invested in women for 10, 12 years, and then at almost every firm, not at every firm, but at many, many firms, they lose half of their talent, half of their female talent at the point of partnership, exactly when a firm is trying to cash in on all that investment in a woman and exactly the point where a woman should logically be on the brink of a major professional step with a major bump in pay and a major bump in power and a major bump in her own agency and ability to control her schedule and it just doesn't come together over and over again. So we, we've tackled that, um, that point of um, departure, that break point in several of our prior reports and took another run at it, looking at it from the perspective of millennials. You know, what are their expectations that are different from prior generations? How can a today's accounting firm partner basically not not solve the problem according to what he or she would have wanted 20 or 30 years ago, but solve the problem for what today's young women want. So that's the type of work that we do. I still do some business journalism. I write for the Chicago Tribune. Um, I write some opinion for them, and I also do some business reporting for them, two separate you know, departments. And I write for a number of trade journals. I write for AARP, um, and I do a little bit of corporate work. Wow. And I have to go back to something you said about the Working Woman magazine. I remember being a little girl. I was born in 71. I remember being a little girl and seeing that magazine. And when I got to high school, I found this really interesting. Do you remember the movie Working Girl? Oh, of course. Oh, with yes. uh, Melanie Griffith. Yep. And yes. her fabulous okay. power right. suit, right? Her hair. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Shoulder pads and the whole nine. It was 1988. Yep. It was the year before I graduated high school. And I remember, uh, so Melanie Griffith, Sigourney Weaver. And I have to tell you, I remember watching that, and I think that that was the first time, first of all, seeing somebody, you know, there was 9 to 5 with Dolly Parton and all these other shows. Sure. But you know what? They showed this conniving Sigourney Weaver who went in to, to manipulate yeah. uh, Melanie Griffith. And I have to tell you, I think that they did a lot of movies like that intentionally because it kind of scared women away from going. Work. And I know that that well, then you've got the Devil Wears Prada, which is even more iconic, you know, and yes. how many times do we quote Miranda or, That's all. Um, you know, the, the other characters, you know, it's like these, yeah, the, the stereotype of the cold-hearted, mean woman boss is a tempting one for Hollywood. I do think that with more women directors and a greater appreciation for what women really want to see, I hope that that will turn around. 
Um, but it is tempting because it's easy for it's easy and comforting for many people um, to fall back into into gender stereotypes instead of looking at both themselves. You know, how am I contributing to this you know dysfunctional work relationship? Um, and and it excuses the corporate culture. The problem is typically bigger than any single boss. I mean, really, you have to look at how is that boss being incented. If the boss is saying, well, I, I don't care what corporate says, we're not going to you know have flexible hours for our team. Well, okay, so that's a problem because the boss has been given veto power over what's supposed to be a big company-wide initiative, which is like, really? How does that happen that a middle manager gets to cancel out what the CEO says? Interesting. But also, what is the underlying factor? The boss is going to do what is going to get the boss a promotion and or um, a bonus, right? So if the company's, if, if that team or that project's goals for deadlines or profitability or client satisfaction or retention are structured in a way that it directly contradicts the company's purported larger goals of retention and talent development, that is the conflict, and that's why where the boss gets to be a bitch, because she's put in an impossible situation. It's so true. And that was exactly it. So it's like, I knew that this would lead to the, the, the get real part of the conversation that we're about to have. Here we are. <laughs> the question is, how are things looking for women today? Because I am the person out here too. I lead a, a large membership community of women in financial services, making strides in recruitment, getting them training opportunities, advancement needs, et cetera. But I feel like we're taking two steps forward, 14 steps back, especially with the political climate and leadership we experience today, regardless of whatever you know, ballot the person's on. So as an expert in all things women related, what are your thoughts? I'm curious. Yeah, well, you know, there's in a way, it's a relief in a way, in a perverse, backwards kind of way, this very corrosive, um, mean-spirited political environment is calling out some issues that have been kind of embedded in the culture. Now, the perfect example is these two governors, the two governor, the gubernatorial candidates that are now, I guess, consider themselves so irresistible, and I've never yet met somebody that irresistible, but I haven't met them, have I, are so irresistible that they refuse to, to meet with women journalists one-on-one, -on -one, or purportedly any woman one-on-one. -on -one. They're going to hide behind the long coattails of Billy Graham and follow the Billy Graham rule, right? I mean, okay. Well, the, and the, what that fails to understand, it looks like a gender problem, and it is superficially a gender problem. But the real issue is that they misunderstand a gender problem and instead of a power problem. So the real issue is that they believe that they are so powerful that they could be taken down by a single person. I mean, that, that they're a threat, um, you know, that they're threatened by a single person um, in, in a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And for a typical boss-type situation, it's really an imbalance of power. I mean, you have to ask yourself, why would the boss not be afraid also to meet with a man one-on-one? -on -one? I mean, we do know that there are instances of same-sex gender harassment, right? So why are they afraid of women and not afraid of of men when really the issue is an imbalance of power and the solution is super simple have the same rule for everybody you meet you know first of all you should be meeting with any individual if it's one-on-one -on -one. the door should be open or it should be in a public place like a restaurant okay so just plain that's just plain common sense for anybody because of the gender the power imbalance when it's a higher up or a candidate or an existing political figure meeting with somebody who has less power but secondly 
you know, you can solve the entire problem just by having consistent rules for both genders. Um, if you are going to meet with um, rising talent, then meet two-on-one, two men or a man and a woman or two women and the boss. Problem solved. And when you just put it in terms of, well, I won't meet with women, you sidestep the entire issue of misunderstanding the power dynamics and you you may you you put it on the person to solve you thrust the entire problem on the person with purportedly less power in that situation to be they they're put in the defensive and all you have to do is have the same rule for both genders and yet you know here we but but the reason why i even know about those examples is because of the political climate so i think that there is a little bit of silver lining in that at least it gives us some very specific um incidences and case studies where we can talk about some of these ongoing dynamics that, that tend to get confused. Is it gender? Is it power? Is it corporate culture? Is it a political thing? Well, now we've got plenty to discuss. Yeah. And so let's talk money. Why do women need to be paid the same as men? Because I know that that sounds rhetorical, like when I say it out loud, yeah. because yeah. Uh, the answer seems so obvious, like it's right in front of our face, I realize. But why is pay inequity so bad over the long term? Pay inequity is terrible for women for a couple of reasons. One is um, women live longer, tend to make less money, and have more career interruptions that interrupt their, their savings both in the Social Security system, what's allotted to them, and their earnings in the Social Security system, and as well undermines their ability to consistently feed uh, 401ks and other long-term investment vehicles. So if you have interrupted earnings, um, and you're making less along the way, and you live longer, basically, you have less to live on. Now, the silver lining there is that you do live longer, and that your partner, if you have a male partner, he's probably going to die, early, die earlier, and you'll get the money in the end. But you also may be so old, you can't really enjoy it. So, <laughs> um, so it's just a matter of actuarial um, uh, you know, just, just the numeric um, realities of it and the mathematical realities actuarially, if you have to stretch out less money over a longer life, it's not going to be enough to support you. But shorter term, part of the issue is that pay equity um, has been very politicized, which understandably, because, you know, we it is theoretically covered in law, but not explicitly. Um, so, you know, it's an imputed, um, you know, the it is technically against the law to pay men and women inequitably, but there are many, many complications to that, such as what is really comparable work. And yeah. that's where um, companies have managed to avoid um, a lot of pay equity issues by saying that what one person does is not really the same job as what another person does. Um, and so if everybody's individual, then you can pay anybody whatever you want. And then also issues of, um, basing um, an offer or a salary on that individual's prior salary when they join the company. So that would, of course, perpetuate um, pay inequities from one company, one employer to another. So there are a lot of underlying issues that um, have obscured the simple, straightforward, um, equal pay for equal work argument. But I think that a, a bigger issue is that pay equity has been generally discussed in terms of individual fairness and, a, and political fairness and the legality of it. And I see it as, as, as part of being a responsible parent. I see pay equity as on a par with caretaking, taking care of yourself and taking care of your family. And when we put pay equity in a way at odds with um, the, the need for flexible work and flexible career paths, it's really a false 
tension because you shouldn't have to give up pay equity to get flexible work or a flexible career path. And we tend to think of them as individual solutions instead of on a continuum that adds up to responsible and fulfilling parenting and self-care. I love that. And you know, I have to say, along the same lines, you had an article um, out about a year ago that had a statement by um, Jenna Etienne. And when it says, when diversity is the topic, people tend to think in terms of them and to define minority groups as problems to solve. And I read that and it, it was so, it really like thrust itself at me that this uh, was quoted because diversity and inclusion is a very big topic at, at females in finance. And so what about, the way I describe it, and you can correct me, you're the expert if I'm wrong, is yeah, gender differences are what they are, male or female, however someone identifies. But when you start really getting into the layering, is the way I describe it, at least the layering of diversity and inclusion, because then let's say you've got the gender, then you've got whether it's a religious difference or a socioeconomic background or a, you know, whether you have an educational difference of skin color. I mean, all of that diversity, it all plays into all of these topics that we're talking about right now, because the more, at least the research that I found in talking to the women who work in financial services, the more layers of diversity, equity, inclusion, the DEI uh, wrapper, if you will, the more difficult it is to overcome some of the stereotypical uh, things you would expect, whether it's the jobs, the pay, the whatever. And maybe that's not factual. Maybe that's just something that I found in, you know, in terms of some of the research that I did in talking to people. But how important is diversity and inclusion in all of these things that we're talking about right now? Yeah, so what you're referring to is intersectionality where you've got um you know, you and I are both white, middle-aged women, and so our experience in moving through the world is probably pretty similar, you know, obviously not identical, but largely, you know, we have a lot of shared experiences in how the world views us, um, generally speaking. But when, um, I've got, a, a, you know, a number of friends who are of different races and their experience moving through the world as an Asian American woman, as an African American woman, as a Hispanic American woman is different. They're different from each other and they're different from, from me. So as you start to add more identities, um, the diversity argument becomes more multifaceted, you know, become more of a disco ball instead of a spotlight, right? And so the question becomes, um, does diversity with multiple identities and multiple types of intersectionality, does it become so fragmented that it's impossible to find uh, common solutions? I think that's what you're driving at. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. So everything becomes a one-on-one -on -one conversation and then, you know, there's no efficiency to that. You know, how do you measure progress? And this is uh, some of the accounting firms we uh, work with in, in the MOVE project, which is an annual research and benchmarking project, address this sort of thing exactly because the tension for them is they, many of them have had women's initiatives and then 
you know, da 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 da, along comes diversity in general, you know, racial and LGBTQ identities and stuff like this. Well, do you just expand the women's initiative to be an overall general purpose diversity initiative? But if you do, then you lose a focus on some of the unique problems that face women, especially caretaking and the conflict of, you know, career responsibilities and caretaking responsibilities. That tends to be an issue for women of all gender, of all races and backgrounds, um, and tends to be less of an issue in general for men of all races and backgrounds. So do you lose the strength of the focus for women if you just make it general purpose diversity? And, and again, you know, getting lost in the weeds on some of those issues obscures the bigger, the bigger topic, which is um, how does a company, a company's in business to make money. I mean, I'm all for that. I'm in, I'm in a business to make money too. Um, so how does the company look at um, diverse diversity and you know the the many ways the many shapes and packages that talent comes in and make the emphasis on diversity as a business priority a win for everybody so that when my african-american colleague wins that's a win for my team too how do you position um, strengthening the unique perspectives and experience and insight and empathy and understanding that every person brings, regardless of their background, you know, white men to, you know, somebody who has multiple, you know, quote unquote, diverse identities, how does each person uh, have the power and the confidence and the technical knowledge and the contacts to be able to do their best work to produce the best results for the company? So you want men to be for women. You want Asian women to be for black men because when black men do better, the company does better and then that rolls back and makes a better situation with more opportunities for Asian women as well. So the companies and the firms that I've seen be most successful with tackling diversity and, and adding in additional identities have, have done it in, the, in this way. They have taken the technical knowledge about how to run a group, how to run an advocacy group, how to structure it, how to communicate about, about it internally, how to identify um, leaders and use the leadership of that group as a leadership development opportunity, not just a task or one more committee to be on. They've taken that knowledge of how to run the thing and applied that to a different additional diversity communities diverse communities without taking away from the unique work that the original group, typically for women, has been doing. So you don't want to dilute the women's group so much that it loses its value for women, but you do want to cross-pollinate the technical knowledge of how to actually start and run and effectively reap results from a group. So the women's group can mentor in a way the additional groups in the technical aspects of how to run the group, but each group needs to own its mission for how its members can make the company better for everybody because that's the point. The ultimate goal is for the group to start producing a lot of case studies where you say, you know what, we identified this design flaw in this product. Uh, we saved this company a ton of money and we saved ourselves a lot of embarrassment by not putting out XYZ as a design flaw. 
or we identified an opportunity with a fast-growing business community that everybody else overlooked because they don't realize the likely trajectory of growth and the likely opportunities that if we get in with this group now, we're going to be able to, you know, really um, coast, you know, not coast, but, you know, we're going to be in their jet jet stream for some significant um, opportunities that we can then bring to others in the company. You know, this is not something we'll quote unquote own. We're the portal. We're the way that this opportunity is, you know, we can onboard these new potential clients and we could all win from this. So the groups that are the firms that seem to do the best are the ones that are able to translate the mission of each diverse group, each identity group, back to the mission of the company overall so that everybody is rooting for everybody else and everybody sees and benefits from the wins of each group. And so what are some of the ways anyone, male or female, can do the something about this? I guess meaning, what is the something? Can you give some examples of what that might look like? Yeah, I know. These, this all sounds like really big and it sounds like a lot of extra work. Like It's like, oh no, it sounds like a committee, which it is. <laughs> so um, it's so interesting when we do these reports and I've got a team of um, former business journalists I work with who are amazing in interviewing. We hear over and over again that exactly that, that people will read these reports and they're like, okay, well, I guess I can like, you know, if I'm on a management committee, I could vote for budget or something, you know, so that we can have more groups or I guess, yeah, I could load up myself with more work. But how can I operate in this, in, with this awareness every day? How can I be an advocate for people who are not exactly like me every day? Um, so there are a couple of ways that seem to be effective. Now, number one is just knowing within yourself and just recognizing and coming to grips with the fact that it's not your story. It's not about you. Nobody needs you to speak up for them. Nobody needs you to translate their story for them. What they do need is for you to basically hand over the talking stick and say, I would really like to understand so-and-so's perspective on this. That's all you have to say, you know? We as white women, there are a lot of attributes that are uh, that are, tend to be ascribed to us. We tend to be perceived as having more emotional intelligence, sometimes true, sometimes not, but that's the general assumption. We tend to be ascribed sort of an office mom role that, you know, we are the ones who are looking out for the people who are maybe less represented or haven't spoken up. Um, we're the ones who break the cookie and make sure that everybody gets an equal part. So if that's what people think we're going to do, then we need to just really run with it. I mean, if that's what people are going to assume, then that's a little piece of power that people are giving to us. So really, I think the challenge is to not hold on to the power that we're kind of culturally given, but to break the cookie and share it. I mean, everybody wants a bite of the cookie. And if we're given the cookie, it's our responsibility to say, everyone gets an equal chunk of this cookie. And if I'm given the talking stick in a meeting, I'm going to take my turn, but I'm also going to share some of my time for somebody else. I was actually in a meeting uh, when I was at the Journal Sentinel in Milwaukee. I was in a really terrifying meeting with 19 angry real estate executives who were, this is 2008, their market was falling apart. They were furious. They felt that the paper wasn't on their side. We should be writing happy things about home ownership, even though home values in Milwaukee had gone down as they had nationally by 30%. So they're very angry. And they, you know, a lot of their firms are going under. And there was me and my two bosses and 19 really angry industry representatives. And I didn't say anything because they just were venting for a while. My two male bosses said a couple of things. And then I said something, you know, about maybe a type of story that would be 
that would be appropriate for us to run that might address some of their issues but would not undermine our journalistic standards. And I was completely ignored. And the only other woman in the room was an executive, a, a regional vice president with a national real estate firm. And she stopped the meeting and she said, no. Some, well, one of the guys repeated what I said. And they, of course, they all started to applaud themselves, you know, tell him he was brilliant. And she stopped the meeting and she said, no, Joanne said that first. And if you think that idea is smart, you need to give her the credit. And it was the first time I was in my 40s and it was the first time in my life that I had been in a situation where I, as an extrovert, had been run over and intimidated into silence where another woman stood up for me. And it was such a moment. I mean, it was 11 years ago and I, I remember it like it was this morning. And I really learned from that. And I thought, I want to be that for other people. Um, so another thing you can do to be an everyday advocate is um, when you are in a meeting that other people aren't and you're talking about talent and who is a potential rising star, who's not, it's super easy to discount the amount of the ambition that a woman has and to make decisions for her based on what we know about her personal circumstance. So, you know, oh, so-and-so is pregnant or she has triplets or her husband hates for her to travel. Don't assume anything. I was very fortunate early in my career at Crane's Chicago Business. I was a freelancer for them for 17 years. I wrote for them every week for 17 years. And I worked from home. And I was very fortunate that Dan Miller, who was the first editor I worked with, he did this beautifully and gracefully. He never assumed that because I had a baby and a toddler that I only wanted to do stories that I could do completely on the phone and from home. He asked me if I wanted to go out during annual meeting season and cover annual meetings. And you know what? I wanted out of the house. <laughs> An annual meeting is like the world's most boring event on the face of the earth. I actually wrote a whole story, um, a parody story that I turned it in. I just gave it to them on the side because I was just like, I thought it was funny. And they ran it and they got all this reader feedback where I ranked annual meetings according to the quality of the Danish that they served and all this stuff. I mean, annual meetings are like <laughs> notorious. And I was like, bring them on. I think my record was like five meetings in one day. And so that was five, five annual meeting stories due the next day. Oh, but, wow. you know, yeah, I know. But he, he did not assume that because of the daily circumstances of my how I you know, did my work, mm -hmm. that I would not want the opportunity to occasional, occasionally bust out and run around a suburban Chicago and eat those Danish and drink that coffee and talk to people in person. And I loved him for it. I loved him for it. And um is a great example of ask the person what they want. You don't know what the discussion is that they're having with their partner or the internal discussion that they're having where they thought, you know, I used to reject this kind of opportunity, but I'm different. I'm a different person now. I want slightly different things. I see a different way forward for myself. I do want this opportunity. I hope they ask me again. So never assume anything. And then finally, um, Jim Wallace, who's the CEO of Burr Pilger Meyer in San Francisco and one of the best firms for women, according to the work that we do in, um, in affiliation with the Accounting and Financial Women's Alliance, which is a wonderful association partner for our project, the MOVE project. Jim Wallace made this great point in our last report. And he said, you know, in his, his experience, when a job is offered to a, a woman, the woman will say, in, in general, I need to think about it. And she'll go back and she'll talk to her girlfriends. She'll talk to people she respects up and down the food chain, you know, her mentor, her executive sponsor, maybe her mom. My daughters talk to me, and I don't know what that says about their career aspirations, but they talk to me. You know, she'll talk to her partner um, and she'll think about it and she'll come back with a measured 
response based on a lot of feedback and a lot of real thinking. Whereas the same job opportunity offered to a man, you the, you know, it barely gets out of the boss's mouth before the guy is like, that's right, and I'm going to take this office, and so-and-so is going to be my admin, and I'm going to follow, you know, follow up with the following three people that I want to be on my team. I mean, he's like grabbing it before it's even really his. And oftentimes, um, executives find themselves, according to Jim Wallace, just basically taking that fast yes from a man and not simply letting the woman candidate take her time with her, not not that she's delaying, but just work out her process for making a measured, thoughtful, 360-degree decision. They'll take the fast yes rather than a slow yes. And by the time the woman gets back to them, you know, the executive team is like, oh, well, you know, you know, guy already took this, this position, you know, Joe's got it, you know, we're done. And she's like, oh, so just understanding people's decision-making processes, and especially with a big career move and giving women the time to work their system, to think it through, just give it a moment. Don't say, I want a decision by tomorrow. Say, we would appreciate a decision by Friday. Well, does that give you enough time to think it through? And, and require that of the men as well. Do not get back to us until you've really thought about it. We will look for a decision on Friday at 11, and everybody gets a couple of days to think about it yeah. instead of just taking the fast yes. I think that is so important. I have a very good friend named Ann Hanley. She is a content strategist who might be the best. Oh, I've heard of her. I've actually spoken with her in the past. She's terrific. She's terrific. She's one of my very good friends. And she has a saying that ASAP is as slow as possible. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm going to put that on a pillow. I'm going to embroider that on a pillow, I swear. <laughs> yeah. And I believe in that because it does take time to commune and, and saturate in certain things because it affects a lot of stuff. And I do agree with that thought that overgeneralizing men tend to be like, yeah. And, and we're right. I'm all about it. You know, I mean, possible. When our current president was in the, um, you know, when that whole uh, Republican, you know, primary season was happening in 2015, 2016, I kept turning to my husband and saying, he doesn't really think he can do this job, does he? Because time and time again, I saw like, you know, basically overconfidence playing itself out. Oh, I can do that. And I just thought to myself, I can't believe I'm seeing on such a huge national stage with such so much at stake, male overconfidence. I was just like, wow, this, okay, wow, there, there, there it is. There, there it is again. And there yeah. it is, there it is again. And yeah. yeah, but it was, it was an eye opener for me because I, I, I just kept, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, you really think you can do this really hard job and yeah, healthcare is complicated and I, and my husband is like, why are you so surprised? Like, you're a slow learner. And I'm like, yeah, this one I am. Because it just seems so out of proportion that somebody with that background would be so confident and just bluster into a position for which he had no discernible, transferable skills. Yeah. And yet here we are. Yet here we are. Yeah, here we are. And that's true. And I'm curious, as we talk about this diversity, equity, inclusion, what do two white women, for those who are listening, that's who we are, two middle-aged That's who we women, are. Yeah. Do we have an actual voice in this diversity, inclusion conversation? Is it valid? You know, 
We do, but again, I think the temptation is for white women to assume that their experience is relevant for all women, and it's not, you know? Um, we move through the world with different expectations and assumptions made about us. Um, I had a real eye-opening moment about this about, I think it was, I was working on the cable project, and because um, I read this, you know, did this research methodology for almost 10 years for um, an organization that advocates for women in the cable television industry. We made a huge difference in that industry. And I was having a conversation with an African-American woman executive and um, about, you know, encouraging women to work and all this kind of stuff. And she said, look, you know, I, there's something I don't think you get. And I'm like, okay, my ignorance is vast and unmeasured. You know, let's go there. I think that's a deep pool. <laughs> and she said, look, for African-American women, we've always worked. And so for us, it's not like this big glorious thing, oh, goody, 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 you get to have a career in work. For African-American women, the real advance is having a genuine choice to be able to stay home for a while because we've always had to work. And, and white women have not, in generally speaking, very generally speaking, white women have not always had to work. They have not been assumed to have been a worker class, whereas black women have, generally speaking, been assumed to have been a worker class. So when you talk about career aspirations, you need to understand that as a white woman, it's a shiny new object for you culturally. And for us, it is not shiny and not new. So for, for African-American women, you know, depending on, of course, individual aspirations and talents and, you know, educational background and family background, you just need to be aware of those nuances, that we may not be as excited about this as you are. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. How would you know? So assuming that our experience and what we see as an opportunity may or may not resonate with a woman from a different cultural background or whose family heritage and relationship with work has been very different. If you've seen your mother be beaten down at work and be discouraged and be disrespected at work, you probably will have a really different expectation and probably some fear. And I mean, I don't know what, what your aspirations might be um, or how your anticipation of your career and your work experience might be. I observed a mom who was a nurse, and um, I told her about this recently. When I was in fourth grade, she was one of the very first intensive care nurses um, in the whole country. Uh, this is in the late 60s, early 70s, trained in some new technology. And she got to go to a conference for a whole week and leave her family of four kids, which I was excited about because we could get away with murder with a babysitter. Um, she, she got to go to a conference and learn stuff. And I was like probably eight or nine years old. And well, I guess it's nine, so it was fourth grade. And it was the first time I thought about my mother having a life outside of our family and our neighborhood and our church. And that she was excited about hanging out with other women like her who were going to learn something. And she was going to put that knowledge to use in a hospital that I'd never been in and help people I'd never met and never would meet. She had a whole dimension of her life that had never occurred to me where she had a whole set of relationships and professional credibility and trust and accomplishment. I was like, wait, what? You know, and I remember that so clearly, standing in the kitchen, you know, with the brown yeah. formica table and the red brick linoleum on the floor, dawning on me that my mom 
was more than just a mom. Yeah. She was a nurse. She was a professional. Wow. You know, and, and, but other people didn't have that experience observing their mom's work. So you can't assume, you know, you can't assume. And that self-awareness is everything. Just to be approachable, I think, is the hardest thing and the most important thing and the most powerful thing because everybody needs to learn that. Agree. And, you know, and I like actionable education. And what should someone listening today do to either educate themselves more on the topics of the things like we discussed, the pay equity or the diversity inclusion, or how do they make their firms and organizations more inclusive as an initiative? Sure. Well, there are a lot of really good resources out there. Um, you know, Catalyst has continues to have excellent work. The project that I do with the Accounting and Financial Women's Alliance, AFWA.org, um, the MOVE project, this annual research project that measures and supports the advancement of women in accounting, um, the report is full of great ideas that often are transferable and applicable to other industries, certainly for teams, certainly for how to cultivate um, uh, a women's initiative, how to be a good mentor, how to find a mentor, how to be a good sponsor, how to find a sponsor. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are tons of case studies in how to continue to reinvent the business case for advancing women that um, often, especially for your audience, women in finance, should be pretty transferable. Our corporate sponsors are Moss Adams, our founding sponsor, and Cohn Resnick. Um, they're two top 20 accounting firms, and they pay for this research because I can assure you my team and I are not cheap. <laughs> they pay for this research so that um, women in accounting and finance and uh, wealth management and all the related and adjacent professions can have this information and can use it. So just mind that, you know, there's a whole wealth with now, you know, 10 additional reports besides the one that we just released. Um, as well, um, if you're in accounting or consulting, your practice area for your clients, you know, whether you serve the manufacturing industry or, you know, entertainment or publishing or whatever it might be, oftentimes those industries have their own women's initiatives. And, you know, of course they vary, you know, according to the amount of effort and resources and investment they put into it. But oftentimes there are women's initiatives affiliated with those industry associations. And that's the intersection where, you know, your interest and a commitment to women and intersects with your own, um, you know, gaining new clients and where your outreach to, you know, woman to woman can advance your career and also can do a lot for your company by potentially strengthening or finding new clients or customers. So I think that those often uh, represent a powerful intersection of advancing your own career and, and translating that business case for advancing women to your own benefit. Love it. So we're getting near the end here, and I always like to wrap up interviews in a fun way. I have three questions for you, and I have to answer them too. You ready? Okay. I am. All right. Do you prefer to shop online or in stores? Oh, gosh. I actually, um, yes. <laughs> I just like to shop. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I love to shop for is quilt fabric. And I have to say that there's nothing like a wonderful quilt store. My husband has noticed that many quilt stores are located near liquor stores. And he considers this to be the ultimate in urban planning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so funny. I never noticed. I'm not going to pay attention to that. But now that you said that, I am an Amazon girl. 
I mean, I, in fact, while we were talking, I saw Amazon, they know me so well, they look over at the window and I either say like, yeah, you can ring the bell or don't ring the bell. And they looked over and I'm like, mm -mm. <laughs> so it's, uh, they're here every day. We're on a first name basis. They know our cats. It's that bad. So there you go. Got me hooked, hooked in. Um, if there was an extra hour every day, what would you do with it? I probably would do more creative writing. I have a number of creative writing projects and um, that I'm working on with some commercial prospects. And I wish that I had that extra hour so that I could just immerse, just turn, turn my phone over, face away from the clock, and just have, just be in the flow for an hour. I love that. I'm actually a writer too. And I have a lot of friends who are writers and authors. Uh, and if Eric Deckers was listening right now, I got big man love for him. He's wonderful. Uh, but he's also does a lot of creative writing as well. And, and so I would probably, I think I like writing, but I also know that one of my things I'm trying to do right now is get out and walk more. So if I had an extra hour every day right now, I would do more walking because I do a lot of sitting. I feel like I'm yeah I'm yeah with you get moving I'm fortunate to have a home gym so that is not that's not my thing I was despite evidence to the contrary do work out oh gosh. every day that's such a girl we'd say that don't we but I do I would get out and walk and more just because I like getting out and walking in our neighborhood because not just because I see our neighbors but because I actually see like new flowers and I come home and I say Daryl did you see so-and-so through this and he'll actually drive by or walk down and look at it and go oh, we could put that in so it's just a matter of like experiencing the world but i'm trying to get out and do more walking and how about this what's your least favorite chore my least favorite chore well gosh the thing that i don't do um i don't like to clean the oven um and i like clean <laughs> floors but i'm not a fan of vacuuming but I'll tell you what I love to do is laundry. I find very much zen of laundry. Uh, the whole Marie Kondo folding thing, I was like, uh, girl, I've already been doing that. Um, I just really, I enjoy textiles and fabrics. And even if it's, you know, like any garment, well, there are some exceptions, like my husband's underwear, but, um, you know, but even something like as simple as dish towels, um, they often, it's I don't a know, it's just like this. Yeah, it, I just find a real poetry and symmetry in folding utilitarian things and stacking them and just a small moment of organization makes me feel satisfied. Housework's never done, but for one moment, things are clean and you can put them in the right drawer and they're stacked neatly and, you know, you do yourself a little favor when you have a nice stack of laundry. Or if you iron, I love to iron. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. So, um, yeah, I love ironing shirts. Oh, my gosh. Just yesterday, my daughter, we were in the laundry room, and she says, why do you have an iron? You haven't ironed since, like, the 90s. <laughs> and the oh. joke there is she was born in 98. She doesn't even know. So, uh, let's see. That would probably be my least favorite chore would be ironing. But I do agree with you about the laundry thing. I don't know what it is, but, like, I love, I loves me some laundry. I can get in there and fold it and put it away, and I like it. Done. I can check it off the list. Like yeah, that. it's clean and soft. It smells good. You know, it's like it, it feels very nurturing to me. You know, and 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's always more opportunities to have that experience. I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> <Never ending. laughs> it's like, unless you're walking around naked, you're right about that. How about, yeah. uh, no, I appreciate that. I, we are going to be sure to uh, provide a link to all the ways to reach you. And I'm really grateful to have you on the show today because the work you're doing is valuable. And I want others to be able to get reach out, know you, have you as an expert on the panel or whatever we need to do because this is really uh, incredible stuff that you're doing, Joanne. So thank you so thank much. Thank you. I really appreciate you including me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode of The F Word. You can learn more about today's guests and the topics we covered by visiting the links that we provide on the episode page. And if you love today's podcast, because we know that you did, please be sure to subscribe and don't keep it a secret. Share it, tag hashtag females and finance in your post so that we can engage with you as well. And always remember the F word. It's where females and finance are not dirty words. Thank you, everyone.